Proverbs chapter 7 is where we'll be. We'll look at verses 1 through 27 this morning. Uh, just recently, I was walking across uh, the parking lot at Target with my boys, and we were walking across the parking lot, and I heard this familiar sound, and it was a car alarm. And so I began to look up, and the first thing that we are conditioned to do when we hear a car alarm is to not think about someone breaking into a car. The first thing that we do is we start to think about who is going to cut that off. Who has their little thing, the, that thing, the remote control that's going to make it cut off? Who's going to do that? And so when we have the car alarm, we're conditioned to not look at the problem. We're conditioned to say, cut it off. That is what we do. Car alarms are designed to tell us that something is wrong, but because they go off so frequently, we're almost conditioned not to look at what's wrong. Rather, we're conditioned to wonder when someone is going to cut it off. And today we are going to hear an alarm in Scripture that constantly goes off, but we so often ignore it. And my fear is that we will do what we're almost conditioned to do when we hear a real alarm. We, my fear is that we are going to quickly try to cut it off rather than to actually look at the problem. But my hope and my prayer is this morning that you would, through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, of course, look at the problem. Look at the alarm that's going off in Proverbs 7. Proverbs 7 is an alarm that is sounded loudly, and it's an alarm that resounds throughout the entire Bible over and over and again. And here's the alarm. The alarm is the warning of sexual sin. Sexual sin is the most talked about sin in all of Scripture. And although all sins are equally sin, the consequences of sin are all different. And with sexual sin specifically, the consequences, the guilt, the shame, the embarrassment are all tools that Satan loves to use to destroy non-believers, believers, and families and churches. And I want to show you this morning the danger of sexual sin and how we can be healed of sexual sin, but also look at sex through the lenses of the gospel rather than what our culture tells us about what sex is. And so before we get into Proverbs 7, the alarm, I want to show you some of the other alarms that go off in terms of sexual sin. I want to start with even a verse that we read last week when we were talking about the will of God. Look at 1 Thessalonians verse 4, for instance. We'll have it up on the screen so you can follow along. I'm just going to list off a, a bunch of different verses here. But what does he say? For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And then he's going to go on about how we need to control ourselves. And he says that each one of you know how to control his own body and, and holiness and honor and, and not in the passion of your lust like the Gentiles, like the unbelievers do who don't know God. So what's the first thing he says? Okay, I'm talking about your, your sanctification, your holiness before God. What's the very first thing he attacks? Sexual immorality. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, Paul does the same thing here. Now the works of the flesh are evident. What's the very first thing that he says? Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. But sexual morality and all impurity and covetousness must not be named among you as believers as is proper among saints. Was he saying Ephesians 5, verse 5? 
for you may, may be sure of this, that everyone who is, what's the very first thing he mentions? Sexual, immoral, or impure, or covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, of Christ and God. Colossians 3 verse 5, another warning, another alarm. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? What's the first thing he mentions? Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And then 1 Corinthians 6 is all over the place. We see alarms constantly going off in 1 Corinthians 6. We'll start in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. First thing, neither sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Then dip, dip down in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for the food, but God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for what? Sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. And then he goes on. He says, every other sin the person commits is outside the body, but a sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Then you go to the very next chapter, 1 Corinthians 7. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. These are some of many New Testament warnings, and not even mention the Old Testament examples of how sexual morality has destroyed people, but these are alarms that go off frequently throughout the Bible, and we've read these before. If you've been reading anywhere through the epistles, if you've read anything in Ephesians, if you've read anything in Colossians, if you've read anything in 1 Corinthians, you've seen these verses, and what happens is we just quickly glance over them. They're alarms that we just want to cut off. And so here's, here's what Proverbs 7 does. Is it takes these alarms and it puts them in a story that we can all relate to in some way. It makes these alarms come to life. And that's what Solomon does here in Proverbs 7. I'm going to start in verse 1. He says, My son, keep my words. And treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call out your intimate friend. And call insight your intimate friend. To keep you from the forbidden woman. From the adulteress with, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For out of the window of my house I have looked Out through the lattice. I have seen among the simple. I have perceived among the youths. A young man lacking sense. This is what Solomon sees as he looks out his window. A young man lacking sense. What's he doing? Verse 8. Passing along the street near her corner. Taking the road to her house in twilight and evening. And at the time of of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him. What is she like? He says, she's dressed like a prostitute, wily of heart. She's loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him with bold, with bold face. She says to him, I had offered sacrifices, and today I had paid my vows. And so now I've come out to meet you. 
to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. She says, I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from every Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh and cinnamon. Come, let us take our love, our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know it will cost him his life. And now, sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not be stray, do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she is laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way of Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Right? Here Solomon is writing this. As he's peering out the window and he notices a young man being seduced by this woman. And he says that this young man, he says he's lacking sense and how he's being lured by this woman. So what do we observe of how he's lacking sense? Well, verse 8, he says that he, found, he finds this man passing along the street near the corner where she lives, taking the road to her house. In other words, this man, this young man who's lacking sense is going out of his way to see what would happen. Verse 9, he's in front of her house. He's in front of her house day and night. This man knows the kind of woman she is, and he's hoping or he's curious by what might happen. And sadly, this is the posture of many men and women in our culture, and perhaps even Christian culture as well. There's so many that do not have their guard up in terms of falling into sexual sin and temptation. Many Christians go into marriage and believing that they would never cheat. However, the statistics are staggering. In a recent study, a recent study shows that in over one-third of all marriages, one or both parties admit to cheating. One-third. 22% of men say they've cheated on their significant other. 14% of women say that they've cheated on their significant other. 36% of men and women admit to having an affair with a co-worker. 17% of men and women admit to having an affair with a sister-in-law or a brother-in-law. 17%. Affairs are most likely to occur in the first two years. 35% of men and women admit to cheating while on a business trip. 10% of affairs begin online. And 40% of the time, online affairs turn into real-life affairs. Integrity Church, friends, I say this because I love you. If you think for a second that you are above or beyond falling into adultery or sexual sin in general, you are a fool. 
There are too many alarms in Scripture that we cannot ignore. The alarms are there because it's Satan's favorite tactic to try and erase Christianity from the face of the earth. Sexual sins are the most humiliating and shameful ways that Satan wants Christians to fall. The young man in the proverb most likely describes many people, maybe even in this room, who are flirting with sexual sin. And the reason why sexual sins are so damaging is because of what sex biblically is supposed to mean and supposed to represent. Sex between a husband and a wife is supposed to represent oneness. This was God's design. Marriage in and of itself is supposed to be a picture of Jesus' love for his church. And we even see this in in Genesis in the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. And we begin to see the the Garden of Eden where you have a husband and a wife and they're together and they're one. Uh, You even see Moses when he writes this. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one. And we even see at the very end, before the fall, before sin enters the world, we see it in uh, Genesis chapter 2. You see The man and the woman, Adam and Eve, are there in the garden, and he says that they are naked and they are unashamed. They have nothing to hide from each other. There's nothing shameful that hasn't been dealt with. And this is really a picture of how we're supposed to be before God. We're supposed to be before God naked and unashamed. We're supposed to be one with God in this way. This is why marriage is such an appropriate Example between our relationship with God because it's supposed to say oneness, freedom, unconditional love. And this is the reason why in the Old Testament when the Israelites, God's people would turn over to sin or, or start to worship pagan gods, God would look at them and call them adulterous people. God said this because he's comparing his relationship to his people like a marriage. So if marriage between a husband and wife is supposed to be a picture, an imperfect picture, but a picture of Christ in the church, why wouldn't Satan do his best to distort that view in every way that he possibly could? Why wouldn't he try to take something as beautiful as sex and a gift from God as sex to try and wreck men and women by persuading them to find their fulfillments elsewhere? Satan's favorite thing to do is to take a picture that God makes to show his love and to try to distort it in a way that we no longer trust God. For for example, let's just look at God as father for a moment. God portrays himself in the Bible as he is our father. When we talk about that example, it's supposed to mean, okay, that means he's strong and he provides for me. And he unconditionally loves me and he builds me up and he accepts me. But because of the way that the picture of fathered has been so screwed up in our culture, whereas 40% of young children, boys and girls, go to bed at night without their father at home. So what happens when we use the example, God is our father? Well, most people in our culture, we get a knee-jerk reaction. We jolt and say, oh, that means he's a scumbag. That means he's not at home. That means he's neglectful. That means he's abusive. That means he's dismissive. That means he's careless. 
That's what Satan wants you to believe. That's what Satan wants you to do. He wants you to take a picture that God created and he wants you to distort it so that you won't trust God. Marriage is the same thing. God's relationship with his church is like a marriage. This is the husband that's supposed to lay down his wife for his bride. Christ lays down his life for us. And so we think about, okay, it's supposed to be a marriage. So what is a marriage? Satan wants you to think that a marriage is unfaithful. It's separate. It's broken. It's dysfunctional. And the promises that are made are not permanent. It's exactly what he wants to do. And so for us, for us to think that we are beyond it or above it would be foolish. Guard yourselves, Integrity Church. Satan loves to see the brokenness in this world to try to distort Christ in the church. Look at even the type of woman that is seducing this man. Look at verse 10. And behold, a woman meets him. How is she dressed? He says, like a prostitute. He says she's wildly at heart. It means that she is aggressively desperate. She's going to get what she wants. She's loud and she's wayward. She wants attention so desperately. Her feet do not stay at home. What does she do? She seizes him and she kisses him. She even says she has a husband. But she has this view of God that's very skewed. If you look at verse 14, she said, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. Her view of God is skewed because she doesn't understand grace. She thinks, well, I've paid my vows. I made a sacrifice for all the bad things I do. Now I'm clean. I can do whatever I want again. That's her view of God. Her view of grace is skewed, and she believes that she can just ask for forgiveness and make a sacrifice to God later so she can do whatever she wants, but she doesn't understand God's unconditional love and how he desires to free her from her sin and her brokenness. And this woman who's married woman, but she's still not content, which, by the way, shows you, ladies and men, if you think that being married is going to make you content, it's not. Your contentment must come from the Lord. She's a perfect example of that. She does not have contentment in the Lord, so she's trying to find it elsewhere. And she has a husband, but she's seeking for any man to take her. That's how desperate she is. And sadly, even this man that Solomon is speaking of, even this young man who's ignorant and lacking sense, as he gives himself over to her, will not be enough for her. Nothing will until she sees the love of her heavenly father. But until then, until then, Satan will use her desperation as a tool to defeat broken men. And this is what Satan loves to do with men and women today. All across our globe. This is why pornography is a global industry estimated to be worth somewhere around $97 billion. $12 billion of that is coming from our own country. This is why in 2016 alone, there were more than 4.5 billion, 4.5 billion hours consumed on one website, the most popular porn website. 
4.5 billion hours spent on that. The same site is viewed more than eBay, MSN, and Netflix. Think about how much your family or you watch Netflix. 4.5 billion hours in 2016 were spent on this site alone. Because Satan uses the brokenness of others to still kill and destroy. And these are broken people that are displayed in these images, in these videos. 90% of porn stars are abused. 30% of the women in, porn, in the porn industry have confessed to being raped or molested when they were adolescents. However, knowing this statistic of brokenness isn't even enough to stop men or women from viewing pornography. 80% of men between the ages of 18 and 30 view pornography monthly. 80% between the ages of 18 and 30. The statistics go down a little bit by the time the person turns 31, but between the ages of 31 and 49, 67% of men Look at pornography monthly between the ages of 31 and 49. 50% of men between the ages of 50 and 68 view pornography monthly. Christian men watching pornography at work at the same, is the same rate as the national average of unbelieving men. One-third of men between the ages of 18 and 30, one-third of men between the ages of 18 and 30 either think they are addicted or they're unsure if they're addicted to pornography. Combined, in all ages of men, 18% of all men either think they are addicted or are unsure if they are addicted to pornography, which, by the way, equates to, listen to this, 21 million men. And that's who think that they're addicted to pornography. I would say it's much more. And this is not just every man's battle. The porn industry also is on a rise to targeting women as well. According to a study published by the Cyber Psychology and Behavior, 62% of women have seen pornography by the age of 18, and 13% of women view pornography monthly. And porn is a new drug that only leads to destruction. Nearly 100% of men who've had an affair also looked at pornography on a regular basis. And I'm not in any way saying that if you look at porn, you're automatically going to have an extramarital affair. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that if it is not confessed and repented of, you will most likely act out in some way that is more destructive. And if you think for a moment that you can fight it on your own, you are lying to yourself. You're absolutely lying to yourself. And if you think for a moment that it's not harmful to you or to others, you are lying to yourself. I'm a pastor, so I've met a lot of crying wives whose husbands are addicted to pornography. They've either caught their husbands, or their husbands have finally come clean and repented after being addicted to pornography. And then she begins to talk about how it's played a role and how he expresses his love, his intimacy to her, his care for the children, where pornography has made 
him a zombie relationally, socially, sexually? Because it hurts us. It harms us. So you won't be able to fight it on your own. This is why you need Christ. This is why you have grace. This is why you need the gospel. And so this morning, if you find yourself trapped, there's freedom in the gospel. But look at verse 21. This is what happens when we don't see freedom in the gospel. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught in a fast till the arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into the snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside your ways. Do not stray into her past. For many a victim she has laid low, and all of her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol. She goes down to the chambers of death. I want you, friends, to be haunted by the language here. The young man thinks that this woman will bring him fulfillment, but he is like an ox being pulled to the slaughter. He's like a deer that's caught in a trap, and he's waiting for the hunter to come and put him away. And Solomon says that many a victim, she is laid low. And her house is the way to Sheol, which, by the way, is another word for hell. Her house is the way to hell. Let that haunt you this morning. Let that draw you to grace. So there's a few different types of people here this morning. First of all, there are those of you, in terms of sexual sin, you want to ignore it. And and you want to be ignorant of it. Some of you who are already entangled by it. And third, there are those of you who are actively fighting it. So let me address those of you who are ignorant to it. Don't think that you are above or beyond it. I've had too many of my closest friends, one of them, one of my dearest friends, caught in pornography and an extramarital affair. I've seen it as a pastor. I've seen it with my close friends. You must always be on guard. And Paul even says it at the end of of 1 Corinthians when he's leaving them and he's leaving them behind. He's leaving them with another qualified pastor. He wants a, a man named Apollos to come in and preach and teach these people. And he tells them, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Act like women. He's telling these people in the church, be watchful. Know yourselves. There's another pastor uh, I read often, um, Dr. Russell Moore. He wrote a book called Tempted and Tried, and it's about the same thing that we're talking about, a lot of things about how the devil uses uh, tactics on us to tempt us to not trust the Lord. And he uh, talks about in that book something that I don't do in my premarital counseling when I'm considering. As he does a lot of premarital counseling, he meets with couples. He, he'll look at the husband, he'll look at the wife, and ask them the same question. If you were to cheat on your spouse, how would you do it? That's a gutsy question. You, you never know what kind of answer you're going to get, right? That's a gutsy question. Why is he doing that? Because he wants them to be aware so that they can be on guard. Because the worst thing that they could be 
is ignorant to it. This is why you can't be ignorant to how you communicate with the opposite sex. Many of you are ignorant in how you communicate on social media. You're doing inboxes with people on Facebook. You're talking, direct messaging people on Instagram. You have email. Maybe, maybe you even create a different email so you can have a conversation with this one person at work or one person in your neighborhood. Man, it will only lead to death. I want you to be haunted by Proverbs 7 and see what it leads this man to, his own destruction. And many of you need to set some major boundaries with how you're texting with how you're communicating on social media when in terms of the opposite sex. Because it will lead to destruction if you're not careful. Facebook's created another avenue where we can, maybe we can communicate to old flings or people from high school that we haven't seen in a while. Maybe people that we want to see if they're still interested in us. And it's our passive, aggressive way to test the waters It's only going to lead to destruction, friends. Have good safeguards. Your spouse, your future spouse, should know how to access your social media accounts, your email accounts. If they don't, man, you're just setting it up to where you are untouchable and setting it up into a way that's going to lead to your destruction. And I say that because I love you. Don't be ignorant to it. Don't think you're above it. Don't think you're beyond it. So that's the first group that I want to talk to this morning. I want to talk to the second group, those who are already entangled by it. Maybe this morning you're one of the stats that I read earlier about someone who's looking at pornography monthly. Maybe it's more than that. Maybe it's weekly. Or maybe it's even daily. Or maybe you've looked at pornography so much that it's led to where you begin to act out on it. Maybe you're testing the waters in an emotional affair. And by the way, most emotional affairs lead to something physical. But maybe it's already gotten physical for you. Maybe it's even something that you've done in the past that you haven't brought to light or confessed or repented of. Maybe it's an affair that you've had in the past. Maybe it's pornography that you've looked at in the past. But if you've done it in the past and you've never confessed it, Without true repentance and without true confession, most likely you are going to do it again. And if you're entangled by it, my plea for you this morning is that you would first repent. And that you would repent, first of all, to the Lord Jesus. Because that is where grace and mercy lies. He says it in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Here's the good news. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Perhaps you've been entangled, so entangled by your sin this morning that you don't believe that what you've done is forgivable. But friends, that is not the gospel. That's not the gospel. There's no sin too great for the forgiveness that is offered through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. There's no sin that Jesus hasn't died for and paid for. And when you acknowledge that 
the cross of Christ applies for you, you are acknowledging that all of your sins, past, present, and future, have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And so this morning, I'm going to tell you, if you feel so entangled by sin, you feel like there's no hope that you're going to conquer it on your own. You're not going to conquer it on your own. You're not going to conquer it through a person that you talk to about it. You're going to conquer it primarily through the blood of Christ. And from there, then you open up the floodgates. Then you're able to talk about it with other people. Then you begin to see freedom happen when you should. That should be a next step. You should be able to repent before the Lord. And then your next step is to say, man, I've got to be accountable. I've got to talk to my spouse about this. I've got to talk to my friend about this. I've got to talk to my pastor or the person that's leading my small group about this. Someone who's already fighting the battle. That those should be the steps that you take. And we even see this, even in the passage that was read just a moment ago by the band, Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is actually David's lament over his own sin. In the Bible, David is called the man after God's own heart. But we know that David wasn't perfect, specifically in terms of sexual sin. David sees a woman, Bathsheba, bathing on a roof. And so what does he do? He uses his position of power and authority and him being a king. And he says, I'm going to take advantage of that woman. So I'm going to get one of my servants to go and get her and bring her to me so that I could sexually have my way with her. And then he hides it for months and months and months. And he never comes clean. But what happens, the Lord brings it out of him. And what's being brought out of him is brokenness and repentance. And what does David say? Psalm 51, verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Why is this man called a man after God's own heart? Because he was broken over his sin and because the Lord took that sin and showed David that he needed grace. And from there, friends, God made David a new man. So not only should you repent before the Lord Jesus, but you should repent to others as well. Freedom is found in the light and not in hidden places. So let me challenge you this morning. If you're entangled and sin in this way, this is a place to share your struggles. We've talked about it often in integrity. We say liars don't have real friends. Because if you're a liar and you're walking hidden, people can't really help you. People can't really rightly love you. But if you're walking in repentance, people get to see who you really are. And then they have the ability to love you in spite of you. That's what the Lord Jesus does to us. And that's what we all do for one another. And so repent. Repent to the Lord. Repent to others. How about the third person? So we talked about those who are ignorant to it, those who are entangled by it. But what about those who are actively fighting it? For those who are actively fighting it, I will challenge you to continue to be open about it. Continue to have your guard up. Allow God to use your fight to help others who are ignorant to it and who are also entangled by it. And may you who are actively fighting it begin to see sex as a wonderful gift from God. Growing up in the church, I've seen it as, well, first of all, you look at culture and culture says it's a God. Sex is a God. Growing up in a church, sex is gross. 
You know, don't do it. Don't do it. We're told our whole life. Here's all the things that's going to happen to you. If you have sex before you get married, here's all the STDs. And we're told all these bad things. And so we're told, okay, sex is gross. So sex is this gross, horrible thing, so you should save it for the person that you love. That's what we're told. And it makes no sense. But listen, biblically, sex is not gross. Sex is a gift. Sex is this beautiful gift to show oneness between a husband and wife, to portray perfect in, or intimacy between God and us. It's for us to see how much God loves us by showing us oneness in marriage. And so for those of you who are actively fighting it, may not your sins of your past bring you to a point to where it's no longer a gift. May it be a gift for you. And so Integrity Church, this is what it means to be the body of Christ. There's a realness here about our struggles. There's a culture of confession and transparency that I'm hoping for this morning. And let us not be like the young man that Solomon sees through the window who lacks sense. May we be wise when it comes to temptation of sexual sin. God help us. Let's pray. God, we know that we're Sin is prevalent.